Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park podcast i'm your host brian and looks like today i'm going to be flying solo uh just some some scheduling but also we've decided to uh basically re-air a previous interview from my youtube channel which is casmo tv and uh in that discussion we had myself barrent and a gentleman named luke whittington who's a, a former maintenance test pilot and also an instructor pilot there at the uh the Army Flight School at Fort Rucker. And we had talked about flight school and sort of the transition of new pilots as they left flight school and went into a unit and uh, kind of figured, you know, we kind of hit everything in that topic. Uh, there's really no point in you know, sort of rehashing the same thing. So we figured we'd just go back, kind of repackage everything and, and put it here in the podcast. So I hope you enjoy that. But before we get into that, I did want to kind of go over a little bit of news uh, happening right now, particularly in the rotary wing aviation world and unfortunately really none of it's good um recently here 12 november 2020 we had a black hawk crash in the sinai and this is part of that multinational force that uh is observing in the sinai it's been there for years and yeah, there was a black hawk crash on the 12th unsure what the cause of that was but we do know that, that seven people died five of them uh, u.s service members and then two others one from france and one from the czech republic uh unclear what happened I suspect, given that area, it, it probably had something to do with maintenance or weather. You know, it's not a, a combat zone or anything like that. But you know, it's going to take quite some time for the safety investigators to to go through everything. And having been a part of one of those investigations, you know, that they go through everything. No stone is left unturned. So it takes some time, uh, but it's a very thorough process. And I'm sure whatever went wrong, they will figure it out. And you know, hopefully, it's not something that's a, a fleet-wide maintenance issue. But if it is, it'll it'll definitely get pushed out, and and some fixes will be. Put into place, uh, but of course, right now before the holiday season, you know, just just a terrible time. Not that there's ever a good time, but our our hearts go out to the families and and sorry for their loss. Uh, additionally, a few days before that, on 9 November, it looks like a Russian Hind helicopter was shot down, uh, apparently by mistake. Uh, what's reports are saying by Azerbaijani forces with a manpad missile. So, uh, if you're not tracking, there's been some increased conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but. Uh, there's been some Russian forces that are kind of operating in support of Armenia, training and things like that. But it looks like, uh, according to reports that I've read, that there was a Hein that was maybe doing some sort of armed recon- or armed escort for this convoy. Uh, it was nighttime. You know, the Armenians also fly Heinz, and it looks like it may have been mistaken identity and uh, was unfortunately shot down by a manpad from Azerbaijan. 
who has since apologized. Uh, really unclear what that's going to mean. Uh, you know, certainly we don't want any escalation of force there, uh, but uh, it's it's too early to tell what the what the fallout of that event is going to be. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, another news for our DCS players. Uh, I do want to just keep pushing this for as much as I can. Uh, Frank's giving. So if you're part of my low-level hell Discord community or you have followed my YouTube channel, you'll know that we're conducting a large-scale multiplayer event for DCS. Uh, this is for our players to uh, participate in a charity, be eligible for some prizes, and have a way to honor uh, a great warrior and human being by the name of Frank Bonacotti, who was killed in a training event on December 12, 2011. His uh, OH-58 was struck by another aircraft. It was nighttime. They were doing a training mission up in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. And uh, unfortunately, Frank and, and three other Army pilots were killed in that event. Uh, he left behind a wife and three kids, and and back in 2016, his wife started something she called Franksgiving, and this was a, you know, a charity love bomb, as she described it to me, where you know she could just find places that needed money, you know, whether it was a school, it could be an orphanage, it could be something to do with uh, adopted children. Frank was was a big fan of adoption, um, and supported that. So, uh, so this year we're trying to raise some money to to help out the Franksgiving event. And uh, like I said, we do have some prizes, uh, some DCS modules, a joystick from VKB. So if you're interested, uh, take a look at our Discord, again, Low Level Hell, uh, or you can send a note here to the Low Level Hell podcast at gmail.com and ask for information. Uh, even if you just want to donate, be eligible for prizes, that's great. Uh, just let us know. But it's uh, $5 the entry, and uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you there. All right, lastly, before we move into the interview, um, we're going to take some listener questions. So I'm really excited that we actually have some listener questions. We've got quite a few, uh, and I appreciate it. But a majority of them I don't want to try to answer today because I don't want to do it solo. I'd like to get other people's opinions. or actually some pretty thoughtful questions. Uh, but there was one that I, I absolutely know that I could answer on behalf of everyone because uh, I know that the answer would roughly be the same. So this question comes from Joseph Penty, and uh, he's actually one of my Patreon supporters. And he asks, what is the relationship between pilots and the aircraft maintainers like in the Army? Is it close, distant, or something in between? Well, Joseph, I'll tell you, it's it's very close, I think. Um, and, and I say that in comparison to the other branches, you know, just from my observation. Now, I've never been a Marine. I've never been in the Navy or the Air Force. But I've been around it enough to, to kind of see how it flows. And, and I would say that... There's very little distance between Army pilots and the aircraft maintainers. Uh, we spend a, a ton of time together, both in garrison and in the field, and I think that's probably where the fundamental difference happens. You know, I think other than the Marines, and even with the Marines, it's probably only a portion of them, you know, it is not uncommon for Army aviation, doesn't matter what the airframe is, except maybe the fixed-wing guys, but uh, certainly on the helicopter side of things, it is not uncommon to go to the field, uh, living in a tent or just living under the stars, and you're right there with the crew chiefs. So I've I've certainly spent time sleeping, you know, right next to the crew chiefs. Uh, you see them all the time. You work alongside them, you know, in the same kind of work area, the same tent or the same hangar. Um, there there really isn't like a, a different area where the pilots hang out away from the maintainers. We're all kind of stuck together. And it's also not uncommon for the pilots to get involved with the maintenance. And, and of course, you know, the maintenance test pilots, they do what they do. And, you know, if you're not a maintenance test pilot, you're really not allowed to do too much, but it's not uncommon to go down and maybe do a run-up for the uh, crew chiefs, you know, an engine run-up or run the systems and sort of help them test things out. Uh, particularly new guys, it's it's a good thing for the new guys to just kind of jump in the aircraft and get a little, 
you know, get comfortable with messing with some of the systems when you don't have Big Brother looking over your shoulder. But in other ways, we've also helped. I, you know, I remember being a junior pilot doing quite a bit was was actually washing the aircraft. So all the pilots would get together and head on down to the hangar floor and, you know, just help the crew chiefs get the aircraft cleaned up. So, um, but yeah, I, I think the short answer to your question is it's, it's I, th- I think, from my observation, much closer in the Army than it is in the other branches. So, I appreciate that question, and uh, I know you sent some others along with some other guys, and we're going to get to those probably in the next episode. Uh, like I said, I just want to make sure that I've got other people here, because some of them are, you know, they're asking for some opinions on different things, some of them somewhat complex, and I just want to get some solid answers for everybody. So, All right, without further ado, we'll go ahead and slide into the uh, discussion that we had. Again, this is pre-recorded about six months ago. You know, I'll apologize early. The, the audio quality is not great. Um, you know, I, I will tell you one thing I've learned in this uh, podcast venture. In fact, I was just talking to Jello from the Fighter Pilot Podcast yesterday, and he, he sort of, you know, he, he agreed that audio is the biggest challenge, and it's one of those things that you, you struggle through, and it's a, it's a technology thing, which, you know, means it's a money thing, and, and trying to get all the right levels and stuff. So it's something that we're still fighting through, so we, we do beg your indulgence and, and patience as we work through those challenges, but I hope you enjoy the discussion. Thanks. So welcome back uh Barrett and uh luke is joining us appreciate right on. you coming on maintenance pilot extraordinaire with us where <laughs> or at least a maintenance pilot <laughs> there you go yeah <laughs> uh do you do any so i i mean not to get too deep into it but do you do any maintenance stuff up there is it all like is it a completely different track for you like how does that work right now it's a totally different track but uh, i'm on an r&d contract so it's it's very different work but it's cool because i still get to at least advise on some concepts of sustainability for the project we're on okay i guess too like we've kind of already done our introductions in the past one so if luke you just want to just give us a rundown of i I know you were enlisted you were an infantry guy weren't you i was and it it was kind of cool to see you know as a segue from the last video hearing you guys talk about how many infantrymen become Kiowa pilots and uh i was like well that's that's true. Uh, what's funny is for me, it was a total impulse buy. Hmm. Uh, I thought I wanted to fly Apaches. Mm-hmm. And I was actually holding out for a 64D AQC slot. So I was I was sitting in the classroom out of Shell Airfield there. And they came in and they said, hey, we need, we, got a, we got one slot for Flight School 21 for 58Ds. Does anybody want to volunteer to fill it? And uh, my stick buddy, Steve, and we were still doing the in-brief, my stick buddy, Steve, goes, dude, you're always talking about how when you're an infantry guy, brag, the only aircraft you ever saw were 58s doing live fires or you're riding around Blackhawks or jumping out of them. I was like, you're right. He goes, so why wouldn't you want to go do that? I was like, you know what, Steve, you're right. And I grabbed my crap, I stood up, and I left Shell and went (laughs) over to Building 614. And uh, best impulse buy decision of my life that's funny for sure and uh, yeah no kidding was, i mean yeah. we were we were talking about no, sorry to interrupt you no, Luke, but no, I, no, I was just ahead. um tying it back to that previous conversation about how how personalities are drawn or you just kind of find a fit right like there's certain certain jobs and so much of the aviation business is cultural and how your personality sort of you know, fits into that paradigm of what that culture for the lift cargo attack and, and recon tracks are. Hmm. And there's definitely something to that. So 
you know, you ended up an Apache guy later on in life, so to speak, in your career, as did all three of us. Um, but yeah, certainly like, you know, I have a hard time and we go back a ways. We go back to 2000, what was it? Nine or so. And you and Brian go back even further, mm. but I have a hard time envisioning anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be a, a total duck out of water experience if it's flying regular aircraft. You know? so, yeah. So, so Luke and I go back all the way to was 2004. So yep. when I showed up, you were, I think they're maybe three months or so ahead of me, a couple months ahead of me. Um, I got there May of May of '04, and I think okay. you and Bo you and Bo got there in the fall. Yeah, I think it was I think it was November is when we signed in. So yeah, yeah, um, and it was like right on the heels. Frank got there in like July, hmm. or July August maybe. Yeah, that's right. Frank was between us. Um, so we all kind of so you kind of handed the mantle of the, of the woge off. Um, I think you were. The, the bull woge, so to speak, for a while. So, <laughs> indeed, and we'll, and we'll we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the, to to go back to your story though about picking aircraft, the the funniest, and, and you bring up Bo, the the funniest experience of flight school for me was was that day when in my class we were picking aircraft, and so uh, Gabe, uh, you know, was in my flight school class as well, and um, the entire time all he did was talk about he wants to fly Blackhawks. Well, here it is, it's go time. And they're going down the list, and they go to and they look at Gabe and they say, "What do you want?" And all of a sudden, he just goes, "Kiowas." And so <laughs> and so, Bo, being Bo, <laughs> who who had <laughs> no filter, um, knew right from then that he was not going to get Kiowa because they had run out. I think that was like the last one or something. And he knew he wasn't going to get it, and he had wanted it the entire time. Well, Bo had already finished his instrument check ride. Gabe had not, and Bo just looks at him. And his straight face, he goes, I hope you fail your check ride. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly something Bo would it say. Absolutely. It was <laughs> tremendous. Um, it was like, golly. Uh, savage. I, yeah, and I, it was savage. So I, I still give him crap anytime I see him about that. But that was that was hilarious. But, um, yeah, you see that, some, some people, like, suddenly have to make the hard call right there. <laughs> was that still AQC? Like, when was aircraft selection for in your time? For our class, uh, Flight School 21 was about 50%. Um, and so, which kind of, which is like Bo kind of fell into this weird category where he was, I think like he was the last person of that top 50%. And so he was the last on the totem pole to get a Flight School 21 slot, which means you get the bottom of the barrel. Um, and he got Apaches. And he had been an Apache uh, armament guy, I think. Um, yeah, that's and he, right. And he hated them. So, or he liked the alpha. <laughs> what he told me is he liked the alpha model. He's like, if we we're still flying alphas, I would love it. He says, but I don't want the delta because it's so there's so much technology. It's broke all the time. Blah blah blah. So, <laughs> so he wanted twenty two years later, still right. true. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but back then you could do trades, right? So I was the class leader, and I was buddies with the class leader behind us, and we did this weird three way swap, and and Bo basically got rolled. Uh, I think he got rolled a class back and joined a 58 class or something, and then we showed up at Bragg together. But um, but you can't. I guess you can't do that anymore. Like you, whatever you get, that's what you get, and you don't throw a fit. Well, you know they turn it into a whole production now, where you know they get the, the CG or the chief staff down there. They do it to the O Club. They do this big presentation, and oh, gosh. It, it's just become a, a a big production. And 
Yeah. Very, very interesting how they're doing it. But all the flexibility on who gets what, it still needs an army base. Yeah. You know, when it comes sure. down to it, it's how yeah. many seats do they need to fill what aircraft, you know? I can, and, and... I can speak to that a little bit because that's, that's what I'm doing right now. So yeah. it, it is a little more sexy. For instance, when I did aircraft selection, I think we were just, you know, the class was gathered and we were handed a, <laughs> a, uh, clipboard with a piece of paper on it said these are these are the available aircraft for your class yeah and you know mr smith you are number one in in the oml so what do you want that's exactly and then they right. just kind of went down and put tick marks next to the aircraft that were available yeah and that was it um what they're doing now is a little more sexy and as far as making it an event there their beer mugs and they're handing stuff out and the family members are there and they kind of oh, show a video and there's music and the, you know they're making a production out of it so That's it cool. kind of makes it more yeah it's more memorable for for the kids going through yeah um but like like luke was saying it's totally <laughs> you know you it happens every two weeks <laughs> one one week it may be uh, you got anywhere, usually about 40 to 50 uh, flight st students in that class that are awaiting selection. And it, here's your 24 Blackhawks, uh, three Chinooks, two C-12s, and eight Apaches. And then the next week, it's here's your 37 Apaches, yeah. no Chinooks, two Blackhawks. And, and, you know, people get disappointed. Like, because yeah. like we were saying last time, like the aircraft that you select, like that's your life for the next minimum six years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And I guess more now. So they're talking about, yeah, it was kind of the same that you just went into a room and there was a dude and he said, here's the OML, you know, Bill, you're, you're first, and John, you're second. What do you want? And, and for assignments too, um, which was another weird story for me, but I won't get into it. Um, yeah. So I think maybe, and as a segue here, you sort of the flow of, of flight school, um, after, after you apply and get selected and, you know, Luke and I were warrant officer candidates and then ended up in flight school. And did you go th through flight school as a warrant or as a uh, warrant? Yeah. So I, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was a captain at Fort Knox and applied for a transition to, uh, to aviation from armor and was not selected and they told me you know hey you got a strong packet you should try it again in the next one and the next one was in six months well i was getting ready to go to the career course um it was called the advanced course back then and uh and i i just had the had the bug at that point like you know i'd met these pilots just by chance i'd met like these apache guys at, at fort knox and talked to them and stuff and one of them had suggested like well why don't you just go warrant and i kind of laughed like oh why would i that's insane why would i do that you know um and then when I didn't get picked up for the transition, I was like, well, I, maybe I, maybe I'll look into that. So, so yeah. So when I went to Rucker, I, I PCS there as a captain and during the in-processing basically walked into building whatever 5,700 as a captain one day and walked out as a W1. And I just walked down the flight school and said, no, I'm, I'm here for flight school. And they were like, who, who are you? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know, cause, cause I wasn't, normal. yeah, it wasn't normal at all. And uh, a class had just started, and they were like, well, we need you to wait two weeks, but we're just going to stick you in the next class that starts, which was kind of weird because there were dudes on hold for a really long time. But I think, I guess by virtue of my previous rank, they just kind of ushered me to the front of the line for whatever reason. And then, of course, 
you know, the first day they pull everybody in. They're like, okay, um, who here was an E6 or above? You know, and like five people, six people raise their hand. Okay, who was an E7 or above? A couple less people raise their hand. And uh, they're like, who was an E8 or above? And like, I'm got my hand up. And they're like, what were you? I was like, a captain. And they're like, oh, you're the class leader. I was like, ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah. But um, maybe worth um, explaining like the difference between. Uh, so what's a warrant officer? What is a, yeah. a what we call RLOs, regular line officers. So the army kind of has technical specialists, which are the warrant officers. Um, and in aviation, uh, what the warrant officers do is specialize in aviation throughout their entire careers. But there's also, so th there's service differences, the Navy and the Air Force either used to or still have in very limited cases some warrant officers, but not really. I think the, the Navy the does, two, but the Air Force does not. Yeah. Um, so pilot-wise, uh, only commissioned officers is what they're called um in the navy and the air force are pilots whereas in the army a warrant officer not to get you know too deep in the weeds um holds a warrant versus a commission although we are commissioned later on yeah. yada 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 um the warrant officer's sole purpose in life as far as the army is concerned is to remain a technical specialist within the particular warfighting system that they are experts in whereas a commissioned officer is colloquially speaking i guess more of a generalist mm -hmm. um sets policy uh performs management functions and then moves on to other functions within the army whereas yeah. the warrant officer feasibly could spend an entire career in the cockpit or that's that's the idea anyway so that kind of all right that kind of explains the differences so if you want to fly you become a warrant officer if you want to um, fly and do some management tasks or write policy or, you know, develop doctrine or do many, many other things throughout the service. Um, you have those opportunities as a commissioned officer. That's only, you know, that, that's only scratching the surface. And pr it probably is more confusing to people that aren't familiar at all <laughs> than yeah. just leaving it alone. Well, it's even confusing when you look at the, the the width and breadth of the army and a warrant officer because in every other field in the army you have warrant officers who you know almost i think it's a requirement that they were a, a non-commissioned officer um yeah just, generally no less than an e6 so. right and and so they're they're kind of the old man of of wisdom or woman of of wisdom and knowledge in their particular field a warrant officer in aviation could be straight off the block you know, enlisted to be a warrant, went to basic, went to warrant officer candidate school, and, and now as a pilot. Um, and so you kind of see that uh, dichotomy when you when you have, uh, you know, what we call walking warrants in a in a line unit. Um, I remember one in particular, I had a, a W1 that worked for me when I was in a, a aviation support battalion, and, you know, she was a supply specialist and very good at her job, but very used to being important as a w1 um the expert right and 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 kind of exceeded you know her reach kind of exceeded her grasp in a certain case and i had to go there and kind of talk to her and like look this is an aviation unit and you're a w1 nobody cares like i got it you're very <laughs> smart at supply and i and i love you and i appreciate you you stock the fridge in every other unit in this brigade so just keep that in mind when you're interacting with people 
because all they see is that one little dot. But yeah. yeah, for the commission side, you know, and and I, having been a, having been both, I loved my warrant time. But I guess um, I've got one of those wandering hearts, and I did, you know, yes, I love flying, and flying every day sounds really good, especially now, um, based on where I'm at. But everything, everything gets old to some extent, and and if you're one of those people that's like, well, I want to do something different, I want to do something new. As a as an RLO, you're doing that because every job you do is the first time you've ever done it, and you'll probably never do it again. So you're always doing something different. Um, so that is kind of the difference. Yeah. And, and there's there's a sizable pay difference at certain at certain levels. There I is mean, that's just, exactly. There is. Yeah. Um, but you know, I took I took a I think it was a thousand dollar a month pay cut when I left being a captain to become a W one. Didn't matter because I was doing something I wanted to do and I loved it and I didn't care about the money. So I think that's kind of that old adage that you know if you love what you do, you never work a day. So yeah, so that's kind of a great. Um, segue, there's two paths into Army aviation, warrant officer flight training and uh, going through ROTC or another commissioning commissioning source like OCS out of college and then going into the aviation branch as a lieutenant and then go into flight training. Um, But you can apply specifically for warrant officer flight training to do nothing other than that. You are applying to flight training and in order to do that you have to be a warrant officer uh, if that's the path you're taking so they assess you under those criteria and then you go to warrant officer candidate school to go to flight school and so on and so forth right so high school to flight school. yeah two, two different paths yeah yeah you know the uh, assessment rate right now it's been um, pretty high so I, I figure if people want to know about it then they should know it's a good time to apply and you can apply from yeah. other services right off the street. Yep. Uh, so there are certainly more what we call street to seat warrant officer candidates than I have ever seen throughout my 26 plus years. Um, street to seat was kind of an anomaly back in the day because huh. the, or- the army prefers to use you know, recruit from within the ranks, so to speak. So if you were an E3 and E4 or the infantrymen like Luke was, and you look up and you say, I want, I, I'm tired of sitting in mud holes and, <laughs> slot, you know, carrying a 50 pound ruck and walking 24 miles a day. I want to go fly helicopters. You apply from, you put your warrant officer flight training packet in to be accepted um, competitively. And then you go to warrant officer flight training. Well, that's that was i you know i don't know what the ratio was probably nine to one um now it's probably six to four there's a lot more street to see people so like you said it's a it's a pretty good time to to get into military aviation in any regard i think in any of the services because there's a lot of uh outflows so to speak for many reasons and just to highlight that you know even the reserve component right now has a huge recruiting campaign going on uh they're actually there you know there are opportunities for recently retired from active duty aviators to go back to flying on active duty yeah or you know fill our staff position even so yeah that that ties to a couple other conversations about our current force uh health of our force i guess yeah. way to say that but well, when I probably get, not not for here. <laughs> when I get bored, I I tell my or get frustrated at work. I just tell my wife I'm going to drop my warrant packet again, but she says we can't afford that change again. So <laughs> yeah, I'm stuck yeah, all about standard yeah. living. Oh yeah, especially, especially when you have a multitude of kids. Um, yeah. So 
kind of not that we're off track, but um, let's just talk about flight school. So uh, I know it's changed a little bit. Um, and Luke, you can definitely talk to this. Uh, I, th I think when I saw you, gosh, a little over a year ago now, um, and we kind of talked about the, the changes as far as the IPs. But, you know, when we, I think we all went through flight school, it was primary, and then you went to instruments. But now that's kind of integrated. Yeah, so they, and they've worked in the last year to separate it back out. But basically hmm. what happened is you kind of had the classic where you went through, you know, ground school first two weeks, and then you started flight training primary. And then after primary, you did instruments. And then after instruments, then there was a split because you either went to uh, low-level nav, like a two-week prep course prior to starting Flight School 21 and Advanced Aircraft, or you did the full uh, basic warfighter skills where you did tactical nav, all the, the tactical stuff, and MBG qualification, and then you went to an aircraft qualification course after that. So, yeah, so Flight School, uh, in the beginning, you're just learning how to fly a helicopter, obviously, um, which... You know, I remember the most shocking part of, of primary for me was, I think it was, God, it was like day two. And uh, and the IP says, uh, well, tomorrow when you guys come in, we're going to do, we're going to do autos. And like, we hadn't hovered yet or anything, you know, and I'm, and I, I like, I was almost in tears. I was scared. I was like, well, are you, are you serious? Like, I don't even know how to land yet. And he's like, oh no, no, it's easier than landing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he was right. Um and then hovering, you know, just, you're learning all these things that I don't care how good you are playing video games. Like that is, there's some hard stuff. Hovering, I, I, I need to find video to put up with this. Uh, some of the crazy video that I saw of dudes like aircraft, just like it was a rodeo, you know, like the nose goes like 60 degrees up and the tail's practically hitting the ground and they're spinning all around. But uh, hovering an aircraft and learning how to do that the first time is, is absolutely majestic to watch. I always told guys the hardest things to learn in a helicopter are the first five hours when you're trying mm. to figure out like how to work uh, your left arm, your right arm, and your two feet mm. and make it hover. And then after a couple of years, when you have a combat deployment underneath you coming back to Fort Rucker and you're expected to fly a precision traffic pattern. And yeah. I'll tell you, <laughs> combat pilots suck at flying precision traffic patterns. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But um, but hovering in particular, I think, is an absolute... Um, hovering and soloing are the two pivotal moments in flight school, um, particularly in the beginning. Because when you finally start to hover, it's, it's a brand new world. For sure. Um... And people would be surprised, I think, at the finesse hmm. and lack of motion in the flight controls. So everybody and everybody over controls yeah. when they're learning. And I think people that aren't pilots yet would be surprised to know that you are barely moving the controls to make to make these things happen. Yeah. Um, it's very subtle. And so there's a lot of tendency. You have to overcome a tendency, number one, to be really tense and over, over grip. And like you're, you know, when you're first learning, you're flying for an hour at a time, you know, your, your syllabus time or your daily flight training is maybe an hour to an hour and 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that hour, you are no kidding. Like your neck hurts, your 
wrist hurts because you've been death gripping the cyclic you're <laughs> you've been pressing on both pedals when and using you know dozens of pounds of pressure um and tensing every muscle in your body when all that's really required is grams of pressure yeah and that takes so that realization comes at usually around six hours or so when somehow your mind just goes, okay, this is how it works. Now, by no means are you any good at it, Yeah. but, but you're no longer a hazard to anyone within right. a square mile. At least um, one square mile. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, um, Luke, do you, I mean, do you remember when you found the hover button? Like, do you have a, a moment in time where it's like, oh my God, I'm hovering and, and you remember it? You know, it's funny. I, I remember feeling like I was definitely behind everybody else. I don't know if that was true. I feel like that's just the natural anxiety everybody gets. They're like, oh, everybody's going to get it before me. Yeah. Um, it, what's weird is, you know, heading control came real quick. Doing some pretty sweet pendulums out of the stage field, but my <laughs> nose stayed pointed at the right spot. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so, you know, my IP is like, okay, tell you what, you know, I'll do this part. You know, you take the cyclic and the pedals, and I'll just work the collective for you, you know. And so I'm just, you know, start making cookies yeah. of the cyclic. You know, I'm like, okay. Then I almost got this. And what's funny is almost everybody comes to a point where they cancel out all their own moves, right? And so in the you know, T67 yeah. or even in Alpha Charlie, it's like this magical little 30-degree offset figure eight pattern that if you can get the right rhythm going, you can move it within all that control range, you know, two, three-inch displacement. But in this little figure eight pattern, yeah. the aircraft starts hovering. Because you're just, soup. you're just washing out. Yeah, and you're just washing all out. But it's when that gets out of balance, uh, yeah. stuff goes sideways. Well, I, you know? I remember picking up the 58 for the first time, and they and they all told us, you know, hey, you don't have to stir the soup because you've got scas. <laughs> and I remember picking it up, and, you know, just it's muscle memory. You're, you're going to do it. And the IP just throwing his hands up in the air to make sure that everyone watching knows that he is not the dude it's flying, you know. And, yeah. and that is a classic maneuver that I would still do flying 64s. I would, I would throw my hands up when the other guy was doing something. Like, nope, ain't me. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. It's just the, pilot, the ultimate pilot disclaimer. Like, yeah. it's that guy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I no, remember the the hover button for me. Uh, we were sitting in the sod between two two of the runways on the stage field. I think it was what is that high high peak or high point or whatever high bluff. High bluff. High yeah, bluff. yeah, I think it was high bluff. But uh, you know, sitting in the sod, and this guy was. We were waiting for this guy to finish an auto, and my IP is like leaning forward and looking up, and he's like, "Oh, look at this guy!" Like he was like mocking him, like something was wrong or whatever. And he's like, "Look at this dude!" And I kind of lean forward and look. And I'm not thinking about hovering. And the aircraft was just perfectly stable. <laughs> and then, you detached your brain from the yeah, process. And because yep. I just let my inner ear and my body control it and not thinking about it. And and then he, he looks and he goes, look, you're doing it. And the moment he said that, all of a sudden we're, <laughs> we're riding the Bronco again. It was so. like Bambi on ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and all those guys have... I mean, they have umpteen thousands of hours. Oh, those. Yeah. So, so back then, you probably still had some Vietnam holdovers. Absolutely. If they're not some still around, you know, oh, they've been still flying some there. Yeah, yeah. There's they've been flying forever. I remember, like you were saying, uh, Brian, like your first few forays at the stage field, and you're actually, you know, transitioning from learning how to hover to doing traffic patterns and then autos and et cetera. But there was a point like prior to my stage one check ride, um, the IP said, all right, you know, go out and we're going to start within, with a 
auto from altitude, and then we'll do a low-level auto, then a low-level low airspeed, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so we climbed up into the pattern, got to 1,000 feet, 90 knots, and I entered, was in auto rotation, and I looked over to my left. And so this guy, his name was Tiny. I don't remember who he was, <laughs> but he was a ginormous guy, of course, of with course. that nickname. Yeah. Um, huge belly. You know, he's probably 65, 67. I don't know how old he was. Yeah. But I looked over and his chin was on his chest, like asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and they've been doing it so long. Um, Not so complete, scary, You know, yeah, it's complete mundane task to them. And then I, so I reached about 400 feet. You know, I was thinking about transitioning to, you know, start my D-cell, et cetera. And he perked right up and, you know, then he was completely engaged. But on, on the way down and throughout the traffic pattern, he was to my uh estimation completely like checked out and asleep <laughs> yeah i mean these are dudes who've seen it all um i'll never forget my primary instructor i love him to death bob gilbert um it's crazy that i can remember that dude's name and i've met so many people since then i you know just can't but you know and they were just so cool and you could not they were completely unflappable i remember the first time he 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 did the um uh simulated engine failure while we were in the pattern and he just, and I, I guess the way he said it put me at ease. Like I thought he was just talking about it. I didn't realize that what he was telling me was that he was simulating an engine failure. And so he rolls off the throttle and I did nothing and I continued to do nothing and I didn't yeah. understand what was happening. And, and he's like, you know, you're going to do something. And, and later he told me, he's like, I could practically count the rotor blades passing, you know, by because the, the rotor was getting so low. But you could not shake these dudes. I mean, because they've seen it all. I mean, they've, you know, as bad as, as bad as Luke thinks he was, there's a dude 20 times worse. And that guy's flown with that guy, you know, 50 times. So you can't shake him. Nope. And yeah, then Luke, crazy. you know, and then you fast forward 20 years and then Luke's one of those guys. And, and I can only imagine some of the things you've seen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was entertaining for sure. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I bet. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park All right, so one of the things I guess has kind of gone away, um, and you guys would know this better than me, is you know we had some sort of traditions and rites of passage. I guess there's a new one now, the rites of passage, as far as the, the aircraft selection. We talked about that, but um, you know in our day we had the hats, we had the colored hats that everyone wore. I guess that's not right. a thing. I guess that went away a while ago. We're actually looking to bring that back. So oh, nice. there's a lot of research. Yeah, that's one of the. That's one of the goals uh, that Cause has, um, 
So we're looking into it and we want to bring it back. It's just a matter of finding the funding. How do we do it, et cetera. Sure. But yeah. I would expect it to happen. And, yeah, and you got to do it right. I mean, the, there were people that would exploit, like anything that's, you know, quote unquote cool, you know, it can be exploited. But um, but you had your hats and then you got your solo wings when you soloed. And I think you soloed around 17-ish hours, I think is when I soloed. Maybe, maybe Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and even that, I mean, it's not a true solo. At least it, it wasn't back then, because you had your your stick buddy with you. I mean, neither of you knew what you were doing, so I guess it's still a solo. But um, you didn't have an IP on board. That's right. Yeah. Um, but you got your solo wings, and you'd sew them onto your hat. And then this was another thing: the solo cycle. Yeah. So, yeah. so that was around when I went through in '97, and I guess it was still around in. 04, 05 when you guys went through. So it yeah, actually it would, would have ended, been 06, 07. No, so uh, my class was the first class um, where they didn't have the solo cycle. It went away with, I think. Oh, I was, wow. Yeah. Um, in fact, the hats, now that I think about it, the hats went away when I was there. Wow. Um, is that right? There was something because I basically told the guys to throw their solo wings on because we were about to stop wearing the hats. And I was like, just put your, put your solo wings on. Cause at least you'll get to wear them for a couple of days. Something I can't remember. It's been so long, but yeah, but the solo cycle was this contraption would ride. Was it like the junior guy in the class would ride it and everyone would squirt him with, with water guns or something. Oh, the last guy to solo. That's what it was. Yep. Last guy to solo. Um, and it was this weird little bicycle with a, with a rotor on it and stuff. And that would be cool if that could come back, but yeah. And there was a, there was sort of a gauntlet you had to run at least when yeah. I went through. So you know, all the, your whole class was out there. And so it was like the whole company. All, I mean, it was like yeah, the whole anybody who was available. Everybody's out there. Yeah. yeah. And everybody had a beverage of some sort or flour or whatever, you know, yeah. some something to throw at the unlucky person that was the last one to be put up for their solo. Yeah. Solo ride. And then you had to run that gauntlet on the bike and get doused in, you know, in beer and whatever else and flour and yeah you made it through and it was a good time and there's probably a party afterwards. Yeah. But yeah, the, those traditions are, you know, they kind of come and go, but definitely times have changed and those sorts of things are sure. fewer and far between. And that's one of the things like that drew me to aviation. I remember, you know, being around air force units growing up and seeing kind of the, the way that they would do things. Luke, I don't think, I don't think you went down to Shaw. Um, no, because this is when I was an Alpha. But when we flew down to Shaw Air Force Base and and lined up some training, it was after the uh, 09, 10 deployment. Yeah, um, I did not get to do that because you guys went down and, and tried out the EW range. No, it wasn't the EW. We were doing something with JTACs. Oh, um, I thought you did the EW range. No, no, we went down there and did some some well. Funny story. So we were flying around the box, and we saw these, or the box. I'm I'm talking local here. <laughs> we're flying around <laughs> at at, at uh, Bragg, and we see these dudes riding around on um, four wheelers. And uh, one of my guys, he's like, "Hey, I'm just gonna land and just talk to these dudes and see if they're doing something, and maybe we can do something, you know, because we're bored." And so he lands and starts talking to them, and it turns out they were like soft JTACs, and they wanted to do some stuff with us down at Shaw, and that's how that started. And That's so they, right. Okay. And they introduced us to these to the F-16 squadron, and we ended up flying down there and giving them like a capabilities class, and they gave us one and something. But as we show up, you know, they're like, "Oh, you guys are a little early. You know, you can hang out in our little ready room or whatever they called it." It is a full ass bar, with yeah. you know, just I mean, just a place you would go on your own time. 
and the back wall was pure glass and it faced out onto the fl- the flight line and all these F-16s are parked out there and you see them taxiing out, you know. And I just looked at the guys and I says, I don't care what we have to do. We we are building something like this at the hangar. <laughs> I'm like, I will give up my office. I don't care. Like, we have to do something. Um, and so I think, you know, when you talk about aviation culture and things, you know, some of the other branches, they do some some pretty cool stuff. And, you know, I think the optics change and, and you know, different branches look at things differently. But, uh, yeah, solo cycle is one of those I, I kind of wish we'd bring back. Yeah, certainly the Air Force revolves around its pilots, right? They're, sure. yeah. I mean, so they're they they're the ones that are put up on the pedestal, so they can kind of, yeah, kind of going back to to flight school. So you know, it it is an interesting time. Um, it is hard work. It is long hours. I remember you know going to bed at ten, eleven o'clock at night, getting up at three o'clock in the morning, making it to flight line, flying all morning doing classes in the afternoon i mean as you as you got through the course it got a little bit better you know got a little bit easier um but primary was an absolute just ball buster and i think by the time especially in the 5864 track there was only so much classroom work that could be done you know so you got to a point where you didn't have class anymore you just had flying and that was true when i went back for the 64 course as well but um yeah, weather days affect that as well. So sure. yeah, yeah. You, you have academics in conjunction with flight line when your course starts regardless. So yeah. you have a split schedule, AM and PM, either flight line to academics or where you have AM academics and PM flight line. Mm-hmm. But so if you that- have weather days and you have to scrub, you know, a, a few days, then your academics continues on because you go to class every day regardless, but you may you may or may not get to fly when you show up to the flight line. Yeah. So eventually you run out of the programmed academics and then, yeah, all you have left is flight line trying to finish up your, your flying, your mandated flying hours or program flying hours for the course. Yeah. And you could be two weeks over schedule, which means you finished academics a month ago. Yeah. So, and which when, is kind of nice because then you only have a half day of showing up to. Oh, yeah. You know. And I mean, when you're in the 64 court, because it's so long and the 58 one, I think, was almost just as long. I think it, it was, was like a, a two week, week shorter. Yeah, yeah, it was like a week or two. Um, you know, there's only so much academics you can really do. And so by the time you're you're done there, you've, you've probably been out of class for a couple of weeks at least. I don't know how it is for the 60s and 47s because that's a much shorter course. I want to say the 60 course is only like six weeks, something like that. Yeah, I think it's six weeks and a few days. Yeah, where the Apache and Kiowa was like 17, 18 Thir- weeks. 13 weeks. Oh, was it 13? Okay. Yeah. Um, it was harder when I went, so. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, so then, yeah, you finish up flight school, and of course now, you know, there's, well, I guess they do SEER on the beginning of it, which I think yep. is a good choice. You had SEER, you had some other courses. So, I mean, you're you're there for a really long time. I mean, that is a long experience. I think I was there a, a year and two weeks, but we weren't doing SEER when I went through. Probably the same for you guys. Are you doing like SEER B, you know, like Star yeah, Fire? Yeah, we did, yeah. did SEER B, eat a rabbit, smoke yeah. a chicken. Yeah. We actually ate a couple of snakes. That was fun. Ugh. Don't talk to me about snakes. There was a snake crawling in my neighbor's front door today. I saw your post. Well, man. no, there was, was another dying. one. There was oh, another you gotta one. Oh, be kidding me. Today. There must I... be a nest. There's probably a nest in his door jam. Yeah, or it's like the the other snake's girlfriend looking for him or something. I don't know. But it was, and it was climbing the wall, and I was sitting there drinking my coffee, and I was like, this, this is too much. <laughs> like, um, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, I got to go. Like, I told I, I told my wife, like, if that happened to my house, we just had to burn down the house. Like, we just lost all our stuff. That's unfortunate, <laughs> you know. Um. 
so anyway, so finish up flight school. Let's just kind of talk about what happens next, um, particularly for, for warrant officers, because this is a shared experience of being the new guy, which is the WOJ. So who wants to talk about the WOJ? Well, so the WOJ, that stands for Warrant Officer Junior Grade, otherwise um, officially W01, Warrant Officer First Class. You go to your first duty assignment and show up as the new guy and uh, your, your learning really starts. So you finish flight school. Um, it's not like you show up at a unit ready to be a mission pilot. You have a whole nother probably um, three, four months of training to go through to work through a progression period where they take you from flight school knowledge to this is how we do business here at this installation and in this unit and progress you through readiness levels from flight school proficiency to a and then you learn your 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 what we call mission tasks but how to fight the aircraft and then eventually you end up probably six months later um signed off and no longer having to fly with instructor pilots but you you start flying with just the other guys in the unit and then your your true learning begins. Well, because in flight school, you you really don't do any team, you know, you don't do any formation. You do a little bit, a very tiny bit of formation flying. It's almost it's like introductory, introductory yeah. right? It's like, and it just happens to be like, oh, that guy's going the same way we are. We'll call him and, and link up. Um, and so you're not really doing tactics at a team level. When I went through, and Luke, maybe maybe they were doing this when you were there too, at the end of the 58 course, did you do a big, like, like mission with your class? No, but you know what's funny is... Uh... We did our end of course AR hmm. and and that was one of our things was like, you know, we go out, we shoot uh, shoot rockets, yeah. shoot fifty cal out of the range. Yeah. You know, what why isn't there like a, a deliberate attack kind of culminating mission at the end of this? You know, what what would it take to do that? And I guess out of that it had been mentioned a couple other times, but that's when they started doing the end of class mission was to fly down to Eglin and do a live hellfire shoot. So what they did in my class was we we didn't shoot anything. We we went we actually went north. I don't remember where we went, but we did this big six ship mission. Um, it was really three teams of two, um, and I think they made me the AMC for one, and then they did another iteration. But you went out there and, and you had to kind of manage. So you, all the students sat left seat, the IPs flew right seat, and it was just pushing putting you through the motions of controlling the site and and talking on a radio and and coordinating and you had to you know quote unquote call for fire and stuff um and then the hellfire shoot the only time i saw any hellfire shooting and funny enough my wife actually got to fly in a kiowa during the hellfire shoot and they flew a bunch of apaches and kiowas down and she worked for the the newspaper on post and they they sent her down to do a story on it and she flew with one of my ips in a 58 and they flew on the wing of a 64 so she could take pictures and stuff, um, which was really cool. And, and apparently something went wrong with the Hellfire because, like, it went off the rail and just hit the ground right in front of them. <laughs> and, she, you know, she doesn't know the difference. And she, like, explained Whoops. it. And I'm like, I, I don't think that was supposed to happen. Like, that's not right. Yeah. But you guys are going down this rabbit hole of, like, oh, the, the future, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to talk about Woja stocking the fridge. Yeah. Well, let's not. Like, there's some, there's some important things there, you know, and and I may or may not have been corrected on my course of how I I interacted with uh, Woges such as you, Brian or Bo or Frank. But anyway, 
you know, when I had to learn, my experience was I, I needed to learn my place because, you, you know, you kind of come out of flight school a little bit high on yourself because you oh, just yeah. did something pretty cool, right? Yeah. But one thing I, on that same line of thinking as far as showing up and being a Woj, you know, it's one of those things where you hate it while it's going on. Yeah. Regardless of how much somebody decides to make your life hell or not, it, it's just a sucky period, right? But it's so necessary. Uh, you know, you're really kind of reforging yourself. And, and what I love about the warrant officer community is everybody comes from such a diverse background. Yeah. That everybody has something to offer. Uh, I, you know, one or two pilots that were not good pilots at all happen to be really talented carpenters. <laughs> just built crap horse downrange. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's examples of that all over. They still contribute to the team, yeah. even though they kind of need to be, you know, brought alongside everybody. And I feel like it started to, we started to lose a couple things. One, we didn't, we didn't have time between deployments and op tempo to really focus on that all the time. Yeah. You know, so it's one of those things you just kind of hand down from, you know, you were the Woj. Now the next guy's the Woj. You're in charge of the Woj. And it just kind of, it's a cycle and it just keeps trickling down. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's effective to an extent, but there's some negatives to it also. Um, yeah, then you got some people that just make it their life to treat you like a Woj for the first two years of your internet. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know have if, time for those people. Yeah. That's maturity and, you know, yeah. some, an in, inferiority complex and a lot of different things. So Lots of different things. That, absolutely. That crushing the new guy thing. There's a leadership aspect there too. And like you said, there's a developmental process through that. Um, but, you know, you see it in, you saw it in flight school with certain IPs that couldn't understand that they're mentors and teachers, not just power holders. You know, they, they wore their, their IPness on their shoulders, so to speak. Right. And, and took no, um, they didn't hesitate to make you feel stupid if given the opportunity, which is right. not the point at all. Uh, IPness so, is now a, a doctrinal term, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. get credit for it. Well, so for, for the Woj, just for, for someone who doesn't know, so the, the Woj, you know, we're talking about responsibilities. It, it's kind of akin to, um, you know, you see it in movies and stuff, the new guy on the on the cop squad or the, the fire department, you know, the, the probie. You'll hear that term a lot in kind of TV shows and stuff. It's the same, same concept. So you're the yeah, guy you, who... You, you have rookie status. Yeah, you're a rookie, you know, regardless of where you came from, which I caught all kinds of hell um <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about based solely on my background having nothing to do with me luke um <laughs> nah, i mean it wasn't your fault but you, you but you do know who i'm talking about when oh, i, when I, know. I say yep, some of these yep. things because you went through it too but um but yeah there was a tearing down and, and but it's also a chance for you to show that you're a team player um and and we've all had the experience of the guy that wasn't that dude who didn't step up to the plate but it, it is somewhat demeaning, but on purpose to, and demeaning is probably a strong word. Um, you know, it's, it's demeaning if you think it's demeaning. Like if you, if you really think so much of yourself that you can't bring yourself to make coffee for everybody or you well, can't yeah, sweep if, up if you, at the end if of you're the day. Seeking, if you're seeking opportunity be, to be the victim, it's, it's the right. perfect situation for you. But yeah. if, if you're looking for, you know, if you can demonstrate your character with a little bit of sacrifice and what you're willing to contribute to the team. Yeah that respect and value is going to be returned back to you tenfold. Yeah. And, and, 
and then it's just a matter of having fun with it. I, I loved being a Woj. Like, once I got used to it, I absolutely lo- I loved being the fridge guy. Um, mainly because I could just leave work and you guys didn't know because I would be like, oh, I'm going shopping. And uh, <laughs> and I wasn't shopping. But, uh, but, but you should then, have been studying your Dash 10. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Well, yeah, but I wasn't. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you didn't know that. Um, but uh, but then you see some funny things, too, that come out of it. Like, um, I'll never forget walking, taking the trash out uh, one day to the dumpster. And I heard this weird sound off in the distance from the, uh, the Blackhawk Battalion next door. And I look over, and there's a dude in, like, a brown coat or, a, a, like, a cloak with a hood on it and a, and a lightsaber toy. And there's, like, 50 people circling this dude, like, in a crescent shape, and they're shooting a paintball gun at him. And he's trying to block these paintballs with the lightsaber. And I was like, that's that's their Woj. I guarantee it. You know, he's he's just made R01 or, you know, something. But... Um, and you'd have yeah, funny things. it's it's a rite of passage, um, and it it's all about how you take it, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, and if you take it poorly, it lasts longer. Absolutely, yes. it <laughs> is absolutely <laughs> proportional to to your response. That's yeah. right. If you show weakness, it will only make it worse. Yeah, Blood in the water. Yep. Yeah, it really. Is. Um, when I showed up, so my first duty assignment was to Fort Drum. And uh, that was the 317 cab in those days. And I showed up, um, and two weeks later, one of the guys had managed to acquire what we were talking about last session, Brian, was one of those 20-millimeter Cobra barrels. Mm -hmm. So those things weigh about 60 pounds. Um, I don't know how tall they are. They're like four and a half feet, five feet tall. Uh, But I was given those and said, you will bring these to – if we see you without the barrels, you're going to suffer. Yeah. Um, so every, you know, Friday night beer call, every hail and farewell or whatever, I had to bring those barrels, 60 pounds of unwieldy metal that wouldn't fit in my trunk. So it was like, <laughs> I got to put them in the back seat and then drag them with me and Fort drum in the winter and the snow, you know? And, uh, and of course, if you lose accountability of the barrels, then it gets worse for you. So if I'm, you know, at a hail and farewell, and I set the barrels down by my table to go refill, get another beer. Well, when I come back, the barrels aren't there. Well, you know, no. then then it goes poorly for the Woj that lost the barrels. So that's yeah. the kind of games that are played. Yeah. But yeah, it's all just how you manage it and get through it. And if you sort of, I guess, just demonstrate the mental um, resiliency to yeah. to deal with it and take it on the chin uh it's over in two weeks and then training starts you know yeah yeah and you know what's funny is is that building that mental real resiliency or or proving it at least exists or the capacity to build it really paid off downrange how many times yeah oh yeah well you don't think about it during those times but it really does have a lasting impact well luke there was a guy and i don't want to mention his name that that didn't conform very well with oh, the, the woesness. Yeah, well, sure. I mean, we all do, but but yeah. to Luke's point, you know, and then we deployed and that sort of like, well, you never graduated from being a woge. That's right. You know, and, and it carried on even through the deployment where this person kind of felt like they were part of the team. And, you know, of course they were, but it was still like, we still expect woge things from you. And they were like, well, I don't understand. You know, we're deployed. It's like, yeah, but you, you, never, you never stepped up to the plate as far as being a woge. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fun time. I mean, and if you, again, as I look back at it, some of my most fun was, was when I was a Woj because that goes back to that, uh, tradition of, of aviation of just kind of having fun and, and, and screwing around. And, and it was never really meant, um, you know, again, you're going to have those, those certain characters here and there, but generally speaking, no one's doing it to be mean to you. It's, it's really all in fun and just because they've all been there too. And it's, it's a shared experience. You know, yeah. it's, it's not SEAL Team Hell Week or anything like that, but, <laughs> no, um, no. you know, you got to come yeah. in a little bit early and, and do some cleaning or stay a little late or, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, I think there's some fun opportunity. I mean, I don't know how many times I sandbagged for, for K-Bomb doing a maintenance flight because oh, I was just the Woj sitting around and I had nothing to do. And it's like, hey, it's flight time for me. Um, so so that's a nice segue. You know, while all of this um, unit uh, cohesiveness building is going on, you are also, when you show up to your first unit, you, you get integrated into the training program and then they sort of uh, build the schedule for your training. And like I was saying, you start with the basic tasks that where you left off flight school with, and then mm -hmm. over the course of probably several months, as you demonstrate proficiency, getting better at learning your job, you progress to mission tasks and then team training and then, you know, gunnery and you end up as a mission pilot. So while you're going through the indoctrination into the aviation culture, you're also flight training and learning how to do your business as a new pilot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's going on concurrently and that, you know, that probably takes uh, just as a number six months before you're yeah. signed off to be a, to be a mission pilot. And at that point you're a PI. So yeah. the progression is PI, which is pilot. And then after a couple of years, you make pilot in command and then you start thinking about what you want to do with your career, whether you want to go instructing or maintenance or safety or um, tactics. And you eventually you'll, as a warrant officer, you end up in one of those track courses. And then you go to another unit and you're one, by that time you're a senior W2 or W3. And and you specialize in one of those tracks. Yeah. And so the, so that's kind of the, yeah, the tracks. That, that's three years in a nutshell. Yeah, so the tracks, and, and that's probably a good, I mean, we've got three tracks here, because I was a TAC Ops guy. Um, obviously, you're an IP, Baron, and then Luke, you're a, a maintenance guy, and, and we're all safety officers, you know, I mean, that's... So, so. <laughs> that's, that's what my safety dot says on yeah. my, oh, oh wait, I'm yeah. retired. So I've always said, you know, we're all safety officers, just some of us are tracked that way, but... um. Uh, but yeah, so IPs, kind of, it's kind of obvious what they do. Instructor pilots, um, kind of keeper of the standard. Maintenance pilots. You're the best. Right. The, fir <laughs> the first among equals, as I used to say, right. as a tack ops guy. All, all the power and none of the responsibility. Um, maintenance guys are, you know, which sounds absolutely terrifying. I remember telling my mom, you know, when I was at the unit very early on, and I said, oh, yeah, I flew with the maintenance test pilot, and she was terrified. Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, because... I think to the lay person, you hear that term and you, you hear test pilot. You don't hear anything else. So you, Yeah, we fly it and see if it works. Yeah, you're assuming that it, everything, every every flight is an adventure with a test pilot. Um, it's a crew chief validation exercise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, 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 I remember I think the first one was like, oh, we got to make sure this compass swings properly. You know, I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, but main and then when you're doing an auto after a main rotor head replacement, it's a different ballgame. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean... 
I, yeah, I mean, I've had to do things in, a, in Iraq and Apaches that, you know, we're flying from one base to another. It's an hour plus flight. And we're like, oh, we're going to do this thing while we're doing it. You know, like, oh, my God. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the maintenance test pilots, you know, are, are obviously working hand in hand with the crew chiefs and, and, and the, the avionics guys and stuff. And, but, but you're the, the guy who's making sure that once it's all put back together, you're the one taking it out there and testing it out. The certification authority, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, the you know the return to service or airworthiness authority you yeah. know, for the commander, and that's that's, that's definitely. Right. Uh, mm. I loved it. I'm big, big into maintenance. Love the maintenance world. Yeah. Love the maintenance team. Hate to see people doing it wrong or with no heart. That just drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's well, it's a thankless job. <laughs> but it is. Yeah, I was just about to say that is probably the most. Um, work intensive uh oh yeah and if the maintenance guy isn't doing it right then you don't fight so yeah the unit uh, feels it critical yeah um and then and then the real true best track which is the tac ops um i I know that's that's world renowned um i don't think it identifies as tac ops anymore no they got some weird name and i yeah i've heard they're gonna bring it back which they need to it changed its binary gender yeah yeah it doesn't identify as tac ops it's now (laughs) what is it aviation mission survival something it's like amso which which sounds way too much like safety to me safety officer yeah because yeah so i refuse to use the term um I'm, i'm a tac ops guy by trade but uh, and tag ops is, kind of, is the black sheep, if if no one can tell, the black sheep of the tracks. Um, you know, some would say it's not even really a track, but then I'd always point to safety and say, well, if they are, then then we certainly are. <laughs> um, but the tag ops guy is really the 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 EW guy, the mission planning survivability. So he's he's the nerd who knows, you know, well the SA six can track blah blah blah. You know. Um, it's it's not for everyone it's it's technical um not like maintenance technical but 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 geek computer type stuff in fact i think that's how bo and i really became the tac ops guys we didn't have any in in the troop yeah, but you guys knew computers that's, well that's we knew bad. amps right i mean yeah, and of course bo is a computer uh human computer but we both knew amps pretty well um Bo-bot. yeah and so we we actually we actually tracked uh before we even made pc um just because they needed to fill the slots but um well, you so can that do that then. yeah you can't even do that now yeah you yeah. can't do that anymore you could do that then yeah it was waiverable you know you had to have a waiver um but but we did that just in in preparation for the deployment um you know i i enjoyed tac ops i i think i learned a lot and i i had a good time with it um i think it goes hand in hand with being an ip and i know they talked about kind of merging them i not really merging but i you know i think their goal was to be a tac ops guy then also get ipc the instructor pilot course and then yeah, kind of be like an rl two to one trainer right um whereas you know red or regular ips were kind of working the rl3 type stuff you know obviously that's parochialism gets in the way of that i think in some cases as well but um no i i love tac ops i think it was great it was fun good fun it's um yeah kind of the progression uh you know we started this whole half hour talking about what to expect when you first get to the unit and yeah uh, i think that ties a bow in it pretty well so your first mm, so your first assignment is where you're working towards making pilot in command that's really the goal and the expectation yep and every unit treats it a little bit differently and every 
so the the culture is treated a little bit differently too the between lift cargo attack and and recon throughout my years i've noticed some differences in how the seniors within a community slash culture treat their juniors and how they develop their aviators they approach it differently and think about it differently um speaking to our experience i think our collective experience and then it varies from person to person and who happens to be in charge you know at the time but the the approach from our 58 community perspective in general is to number one you're expected to know your job and to make pilot in command which is in contrast to some other airframes where i have sort of noticed over the years that it's almost dangled as a carrot like hmm. um you have to prove to us that you're worthy of being a PC. Right. Yeah, I think some some communities see making pilot command differently than others. Um, I, I, though I think that has changed some. I know the Apache community it it appeared from the outside, and now that I've I've gotten in it, I've I've heard that confirmed that making PC as an Apache guy was was the sort of rite of passage, and it was it was difficult. You know, it was very seat dependent, you know, like, well, you're a front seat yeah. guy or you're a day PC only, you know, whereas our community, I think, was very unique uh, that that we didn't do that. I mean, it was either you're a PC or you're not. And it, it's both seats. It's night. It's day. Like, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who was a day only PC. Exactly. And that's kind of where I was going. Yeah. It's like my my philosophy and perspective was when you're signed off R01, you're competent. Right. Like you're going to be flying with, you know, Peter PC. Um, looking at crew mix and you know all the other aspects of, sure. of how we approached putting a crew together, but yeah. Now the the caveat, I guess you could say, to that is in in the fifty eight world, of course, the other side of that is I can I can reach all of your controls, you know. So yeah. um, smack your hand and you know. That's right. Um, worst yeah. case scenario, I can do your job for you to some I, enough to get us home. Um, obviously in a 64, I mean, if, if something happens, you can't talk to the other guy or, yeah, it's, right. it's very difficult. So, so I can understand it a little bit, you know, in that community, but, uh, but it has changed and, quite a and bit. And to be fair, a far more complex aircraft. Oh yeah. Than 58. Just yeah, the systems in it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think making pilot command is like I describe to people because as a, as an RLO making PC is a big deal. Um, because you go from being a commodity, you know, you, you become a commodity that people want versus, uh, you know, you, you're just, you're a just, a, you're a burden. Exactly. You're a burden and you go to being a commodity. You're going, I remember when coming back to the squadron after the crew course, and now I'm an RLO and I'm working up at staff and I could barely get anyone to fly me. And I got JD to, to get me going. And I said, you know, I'm going to be a quick up, man, just get me flying. And, you know, he got me signed off quick. And then I made PC pretty quick after that. And suddenly the phone was ringing, you know, suddenly people needed me on the flight schedule, but I was begging and, you know, borrowing to, to get on the flight schedule before that. So once you make yeah. PC, you, you, you meet your, your value added to the unit, I guess you could say. For sure. Yeah. Um, because you can do it all basically. So yeah, you, you can fill any, any kind of role at, at the basic mission level. Um, yeah, totally. The The last thing that I think that people who aren't in the aviation community should understand, and it goes back to the Woj stuff, is, is ball busting. 
there's a lot of it that goes on. Um, yeah. and it doesn't just have to be Woj's, you know, I mean, even you today were, were busting me on, uh, on, um, YouTube for the video and like, Oh, <laughs> you, you didn't do, uh, you know, you didn't do this and that. And that's very typical and very standard. Um, in fact, a commercial came on a TV today and it was, it was like a YouTube commercial and it, it was, it, it showed this person flying a Cessna and, um, and it was like, you know, learn to fly. And I just said, oh, I'm a better pilot than you. And my wife looked at me like, why would you say that? And I said, because I'm a pilot. And every pilot is better than every other pilot. Like, that's just the way it is. And we're all better than everyone else. Um, but we bust each other out, you know, constantly. And most of it's good-natured and, and for fun. And, and every now and then it's not. But um, but that's part of the life. And I think that that goes back to that why do we do Woj type stuff. Because let's be honest, like, RLOs, lieutenants, they go through their own rite of passage for being a woge. They're not really a woge, but I mean, um, yeah. Luke, you remember Stewie? <laughs> I mean, you remember his desk? Yep. The little tiny like side table that we gave him with a monitor uh, and no and computer. And Watts too. Remember the uh, the kinder the little play school desk that somebody brought in for the yeah. Watts? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, they go through this too. Obviously, it's a little bit different just because you know rank. Yeah, you got to maintain the you know. Yeah relationships there for sure and, and uh but, yeah but their reaction will also color you know the rest of their the rest of their days but um but yeah i mean if you go in and i'm sure it, i know it's the same in every other branch um you got to be ready to, to to take a little but you, you got to be able to give a little too and that's just part of the culture and part of the lifestyle and, and i love it i mean i think that's i think that's the fun part um because because at the end of the day it is always really meant to be good natured it becomes the stuff you remember the longest Oh, absolutely. I, we could fill hours telling stories absolutely. about, you know, this this happened this one time to this guy because he did X. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion. I know I sure did. Just listening to it just brought back a lot of memories. Uh, yeah, I had a great time talking about it. And uh tell you, one of the biggest memories that you can have is your experiences going through flight school. And there's just so many of them. And you know, you, you can't possibly keep them all in the forefront of your mind, but you, you hear a little thing and it'll remind you and take you back. And next thing you know, it's you know, 15, 20 years ago and you're remembering something silly that happened. So had a lot of fun. We could do five or six episodes talking about it, but uh, but we'll continue on. Yeah, I want to appreciate uh, you all for taking the time and listening and supporting the podcast. You know, starting something up like this from scratch is, is difficult because a lot of times you just don't know what you're doing. Uh, but we've had a lot of positive feedback and support from people and you know, all I can ask you to do is just continue to listen and continue to share with your friends. And uh, if you have questions, please send them in and topic ideas, things that you do want to hear about. You know, it's it's hard just kind of shooting in the dark, trying to figure out, well, what, what do people want to hear about? So if you've got some ideas, we, we certainly look forward to hearing them. So if you do have those questions or comments, send them to us at the low level hell podcast at gmail.com. And as always, the comments made by guests and cast members are their own and do not represent Department of Defense or any private business. We appreciate you guys spending time with us, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Take care.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 